recording. I'm recording, and I'm here with Anjali Raza Kolb, the author of Epidemic Empire. What's the subtitle? Contagion? Colonialism, Contagion, and Terror, 1817 to 2020. So good. So good. I should have made it 21. 2021, I know. Epidemic Empire. But so Epidemic Empire in 2021. We're how did you do that? How do you write a book so fast? You you must have just <laughs> turned it out. Oh yeah, uh, I did it in like a month. <laughs> no, but seriously, how? Seventeen thousand words a day. I mean, that's amazing. It's amazing. Just is it just? It's just you. Just it just happened to work out that way. It's an accident, and it's not an accident. I I've been feeling more and more like, oh man, like if you were looking for certain things. Um, the inevitability of this year, or the, the inevitability is a bit of a strong term, but um, it doesn't come as such a shock when you're in these archives uh, to mm -hmm. see what has happened to us this year. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's so cool. So yeah, this is a work, it's a book about, um, it's a book about colonialism and the kind of like the idea, you call it a figure. So I'm, you know, I'm not, um, I'm, I take more of a historical approach. So it was fascinating for me, like as a, as a different type of scholarship too, to read your book. Uh, I don't read that much of this type of book, but so you call it a figure, right? The epidemic yeah. is a figure. So what, what does that mean? Like if you're ex to explain it to like a historian or someone who's like, Oh man, I'm so glad you asked this question because it's actually, you're right. It's such a, naturalized term for those of us in literary study, but figure is really the umbrella term under which we throw all kinds of metaphors. So metaphor encompasses simile, allegory, metonymy, okay. synecdoche, um, and, and the figural is just kind of a bigger way of saying that. Um, in French studies, we often call it a trope or a trick of language. Mm -hmm. um, but the basic idea here is that when we talk about things that we don't know how to describe, we often reach for an analogy. So we say like, this, uh, this thing is like this other thing. Um, this tidal wave is like an earthquake in the sea. And oftentimes there's the kind of looseness and, and there's not always a material relationship between the two things. But I noticed in really following the World Trade Center attacks in 2001 that so many people were calling um, various things, Islamism, Islam, terrorism, Islamist extremism, but they were calling them all an epidemic. And I was like, is there more to this? Is this just like hateful racist language or is there some history here? Um, so that's, and then the figure turns out to be like incredibly, incredibly persistent, almost like, um, yeah, like a figure of speech that we apparently have reached for over and over across centuries. Right, across centuries. So that's um, eight. So you're, you're eighteen seventeen to twenty twenty, and you're you've got the Indian uh, the Indian War of Independence. Uh, I like to call it, but the eighteen fifty seven um, war uh, mutiny, sometimes called. Uh, you've got Algeria. Um, the French colonization of Algeria, and you've got um, contemporary war on terror. Uh, and it turns out that this language of epidemic and um, like rebellion, right? Because that's like, you know, you're talking about terrorism today, 
But right. back then it was actually, you know, we're in India doing our thing and then these people are attacking us and it's a rebellion or um, in Algeria likewise. So it's like um, terrorism also is the word that they use for when the Arab world is doing what India was doing against the British Empire uh, back then. And in um, fact, they, they called it terror, um, terrorism, not so much, but they called it terror mm -hmm. in the late 19th century in India as well. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you, um, there was that speech, terrorism, theirs and ours by Akbal Ahmed is one of my favorites. Like Akbal Ahmed is like someone that I always go to on everything. Um, and uh, that speech where he quotes George Shultz and he says, terrorism is a modern barbarism that we call that we terrorism. call terrorism. I know, let's all together now, let's say it in chorus. I mean, it's, yeah, it's such a... So that it's, that, it's a term that you can't define, they can't properly define it. On purpose, it. on yeah. purpose, yeah. Um, I actually went to an event in, uh, <laughs> about terrorism at a and like all the Toronto media were there so there was someone from the Globe and Mail the National Post the Toronto Star and I was really excited because the Toronto Star guy he was like you know we all know what terrorism is and I was like okay here we go he's gonna define it and this is gonna be awesome and he's like terrorism is terrorism <laughs> so they all do it I don't, even, I don't even think he heard George Schultz like they yeah. that that's the circular definition of the term they all do it because if you go digging like there is no legal definition that is actually um delaminable from race and ethnicity like it's it's right. um it's it's if you know it you see it i mean often did are you the one who sent this to me there's oftentimes a kind of recourse to pornography like i can't tell you what it is but but i know it if i see it <laughs> no, it's very similar with terrorism <laughs> um yeah so uh, i want to because there's so much great stuff in your book but uh i figured for our listeners i think this the way you talk about science i just i i, I followed that thread i did like a search on the term science and that's where i uh, pulled out my notes um from your book and so maybe we'll follow that thread because for me like the way that imperialism mobilizes knowledge. So you you know you reference Said and and you know that's a big theme in your book and in imperialism is like the way everything is used by imperialism, right? Like you can take any tool, you can take social science, you can take natural science, you can take um, all of these things and they become what they you know the cliche like weaponized, right? The twenty twenty mm -hmm. cliche word, um, and but. It's not just the word, right? In this case, like there's, there's also science develops, like public health science, you, you show how public health science like develops in the context of uh, the British encounter in, in India with cholera. Do you wanna just talk a bit about that? Yeah. So, Building on Saeed's work, but also on the work of his student, Gauri Vishwanathan, um, who was my teacher, and on the late 70s um, work of Bernard Cohn, who was at University of Chicago, who published this. Like, it's actually kind of mind blowing, but it's a slim little volume called Colonialism and Its Forms of Knowledge. Mm. Um, they really showed me, like, 
and it took a while to, to kind of acclimate myself to this kind of thinking, but they really showed me the ways in which, as you're saying, there was like no resource left untapped. Um, and that included almost the creation of a knowledge-making machine. So even in the expanse of resources, natural resources that existed in the colonies, there was like such a rapacious drive to extract more that um, entire disciplines were set up in order to do that. Um, so once we move beyond a kind of material um, resource extraction, we get into uh, what I would call like cultural resource extraction, such that um, these massive, projects uh, which had to be staffed or had to be staffed, um, I'm doing scare quotes for those who are just listening, like produced tens of thousands of jobs um, for people who were going to go and like do the everyday work of empire, the everyday bureaucratic work of empire. So I think of the, there's an amazing historian Bhavni Ravan who has a, um, Raman, who has a book called Document Raj, Bhavni Raman, mm. um, and it's about paperwork. Yeah. in the in the 18th century in Britain. And it's actually, you know, I am kind of a Victorianist, like, or like my period extends back that far, but she goes back even further and does this amazing study of just like the reams and reams and volumes of information um, that were produced really as a kind of like both as a justification for the ongoing work of empire, but also as like new data to expand the empire. So this is kind of Cohn's point, but like, if you think about, okay, these, these governors general, um, these sanitation commissioners, they're like going back to London every couple of years. And they're like, mm -hmm. okay, we need, we, we want to argue for the continuation of our jobs and we want to argue for more resources. So the more projects they came up with to like produce cartographies and demographies and set up clinics and set up schools, the more money they were getting poured into their own like bourgeois activities as settler colonialists in, in India. So there's this kind of cycle. Um, and I, and I, so to, to answer your question, like science was a huge part of this and what science meant in the early 19th century was pretty loosey goosey. Like <laughs> right. there were things that we might call medicine. Um, there were also like chemists, right? Who were like creating pharmacy, yeah. pharmacy stuff. And um, there were like huge advances um, in medicine, especially happening in the metropole. But um, one insight that I took from the kind of triumvirate of Cohen, Vishwanathan and Said was that the disciplines we think of as Western are often actually invented in the colonies. And Adar Mufti's book, mm -hmm. um, Enlightenment in the Colony is also um, really instructive in this regard. But the colonies as laboratory was something that was as true in medical science as it was in all of these other disciplines that my teachers studied. And so I was like, well, it's gotta be here. And so now let me like try to do the, the hard work to figure out how and where and like where it shows up in the archive and how to explain it. And, and then also the very weird project of trying to build bridges between that science and then like what shows up in popular writing and literature. Mm -hmm. I think oh, that yeah. might've even been the harder project. 70 novels of the mutiny, I think you <laughs> I did, did not you read all, all in full, okay. though. <laughs> I was going to say, oh my God, that would have been No, if there, were no if there was no like Muslim blaming in them, I was like, okay, noted, moving on. <laughs> um, so, epid, so yeah, so the, uh, I think it, in your book, the Epidemiological Society was established in 1850 and their professional journal in 1859. So, yes. wow, like this is right right in that, you know, Indian mutiny zone. Another yep. thing that's striking is like uh, that in their mission, 
um, a big part of their mission is like combating disinformation, like very specifically, you know, they have this anti-fake news mandate. So, I, you know, I didn't know that. I, 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 you know, it's like one of these things when you read history, you realize like all this stuff has happened before, all of it. Like the, you know, this, oh, you know, the COVID fake news, you know, phenomenon is something that the epidemiological society saw it as their mandate to fight when they were first founded. Yeah, and in in London where the society was for, so there's this interesting like back and forth between what's happening in the colony and what's happening in the metropole. Um, it doesn't, cholera doesn't really like get to European shores until the 1830s. And then when it starts like rearing back um, in the 1850s, this is the moment when, I mean, you can kind of imagine, it's almost like what we've seen over the last year. It's like suddenly all these people, like it has a kind of Victorian reformers spirit, but they're like, we gotta get together. We have to do something about this. And um, one of the things that they were fighting was the like quack medicine that was going on all around the city. And there was a real um, class element to this as well. So uh, one of the things I write about in the, I think the first or second chapter of the book is how, like for observ Victorian observers and Marx and Engels, Engels actually especially, um, even the idea of cholera existing in London um, suggested a kind of tropicalization of English space. And so they talk about like the hot factory floor and the jungle-like conditions of the workers. And so there was this kind of like therapeutic, ameliorative Victorian reformer spirit toward the poor in England that was like shuttling back and forth between their sense of what a racialized um, like infantile mind was. And so poverty was this kind of transnational phenomenon and it was linked to this idea of disease. So the kind of public information program of epidemiologists was both in favor of um, educating the working class in England, but also educating the Indian subjects to become working class English kind of subjects. The Macaulay Minute. Yeah, the Macaulay sure. Minute. Yeah. Um, so, Via medicine. So, okay, but this is a good place to jump to the present. Like we'll jump back and forth. But um, you're like when you talk about public health, you have this um, thing you talk about early on where you say, when you're when you go from um you know when you go from the individual medical model of like the patient doctor relationship to public health you you talk about it like a clinical scene becomes an anecdote which is like one little bit of data and then the public health official or researcher kind of interprets that data in some cases by trying to build a narrative around it so the narrative you were saying, the narrative is a genre of data interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, um, there's another thing you say later on where, um, you know, the context of the, like the big public health player in the world now is the World Health Organization, which has also become this super uh, contested uh, battleground over COVID. But you, you have this thing where you talk about, I'm trying to find it in my notes, but it's like, by expanding um, the, yeah, the determinants of health, like at first it's just like, okay, we're talking about cholera, we're talking about polio, we're talking about meningitis, things that you can vaccinate against. And then you're moving to like chronic illness, malnutrition, and then towards like war and violence. And this is good in a way, like expanding, um, you know, what it means to, to think about health. But you have this amazing quote where you say, you know, but this also 
brings a massive number of facts of lived existence under the aegis of what we can read through the lens of epidemic. So it's kind of like Brit, yeah, like it's just like almost a colonization process too. I mean, maybe colonization is too big of a word, but it's like- Expansion at least. Yeah. Or, yeah. So yeah, like, if you're if you're concerned about like the amount of institutional control that is exercised over people's lives, how do you evaluate something like a, a public health infrastructure bureaucracy, you know, and how do they think about that um, in colonial times? Like, is there a way to think about it usefully from that example? I mean, I think there are a number of things that proceed from that observation. Mm -hmm. So again, if the observation is like epidemiology, especially like in the 20th century has brought a massive number of facts of lived existence under the aegis of, um, of health. Um, you know, like on the one hand, there's something really heartening about an idea that, you know, we're moving away from something like, a like, um, Judeo-Christian model of like logic or morality or punishment or care. Um, and, and certainly like experimentation rather than blaming people for being sick is like all to the good. I think the, I think the, there are kind of two things that split off from there. One is that it also extends the realm of interventions that can be convincingly described as therapeutic. And that is I, I, like, to try to be very plain about it, like that is very bad. Um, yeah. If we call everything um, an epidemic or a matter of public health, or if we say like, I don't know, I'm really interested actually in how the, the people who wrote, who wrote up the Costs of War project at Brown mm. have described this, like why not casualties of like economic cruelty, for example. Um, so there's, I think like to go back to your first question about figure, the problem with the figure of an epidemic and behavior is that there's no agent anywhere. It's like, you know how your teachers, yeah. like when you're little are like avoid the passive voice, like the epidemic yeah. trope is just, it only exists in the passive voice. There's right. no point at which you can be like, no, motherfuckers poisoned water in Flint. And right. like, that's the, like somebody was responsible for that. And so there's a way in which epidemic makes like nobody responsible. Um, yeah. And so it can be politically really problematic in that way. Um, yeah. Scientifically, it also helps us to ask questions that are a little bit more like at a distance from the things that we would think about as being immediate, immediate causes. I mean, people I think have had much more sophisticated conversations this year about what that looks like, like what is a comorbidity and like what is environmental factors have to do with, you know, people's susceptibility to COVID. But we're, we're certainly not at a place where I think we have a sophisticated understanding of the relationship between like power, money and health. Well, the, the public yeah, the idea that nobody is responsible for an epidemic, I think that's especially um, especially key in discuss the just the way we discuss like settler colonialism in the Americas, like here in Canada or in the U.S. Because it's like, oh well, what do you know? Like ninety percent of the population died of smallpox, but you know what? It wasn't. Uh, Oops. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't anybody's uh, doing. But then you know, you see them expanding into these territories and taking advantage of, of all of these uh, pandemic events to confine people into smaller and smaller reserves and, you know, steal their children. So it's like, 
if if it really was nobody's fault, how come you were so ready to take every advantage from it, right? So it, I mean, that's a that's a really good point, and it that that works both ways. Um, like I, I, you know, I wanted to in this context mention like I was reading about Canada and the expansion of Canadian colonialism in the West. And there was like the, the smallpox vaccine was discovered quite early. Like it was discovered in the 18th century. So yeah, 1700s, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, then, that's even like when it became like a European thing. It was in use before that um, in the subcontinent. Right. So they, um, they had it in the 1800s. And at, at, at various points in Canadian history, physicians would go to Western... Uh, indigenous communities with the smallpox vaccine and give people influenza and then they would be inoculated against smallpox and then die of influenza so it was just like yeah it's it's just clear that it's not like some bug like what's going on with these diseases is is something bigger and more complex and maybe (laughs) public health helps with that but you were also like saying uh, another quote from you is that it has an origin nonetheless in unsavory assumptions motives practices and programs it's so. probably not quite strong enough i think <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah if, I, you... if i were writing it in october instead of march <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um more than unsavory i mean I, I i because i have a chance for a do-over in this conversation i'll say yeah. like intensely hypocritical and and i'm much clearer on that even than when i i mean of course for any researcher especially historian or somebody who's working in historical archives it's like yeah i think i have a sense of how messed up this was and then it's like happening all around you and you're like oh now i really understand how messed Mm -hmm. up this was like as the the kind of like baseline fact that we have to expand like okay maybe we'll like um maybe we'll give some people influenza but like we're also bringing the smallpox vaccine but the unquestioned part of that decision is we're still going like we're gonna go take this land no matter what inevitable that's inevitable Yeah. Yeah. yeah and how like what what is the excuse we can make to oh roads and schools there's there's another agency thing that struck me uh, another connection that that struck me which was like uh, I was studying Haiti right the Haitian revolution um, against slavery at the beginning so it's just before your period actually (laughs) I teach the the Haitian declaration of independence oh yeah that's a quite a document (laughs) yes it is Um, it's very like metal I feel it's like all the like bones are moldering <laughs> yeah. in the earth and stuff. Like it's so great. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. But, but they're, they're like when historians write about this, the way they write about it is like, you know, um, the French colonialists were defeated by disease. Yeah. So they use disease to take agency away from the slaves. Like the slaves couldn't have possibly liberated themselves, obviously. So it had to have been, um, yeah, malaria. It was malaria, right? I, f- I feel like you'll love this. I have um, I had an article that I was sitting on for like seven years about this. Um, it's kind of like adjacent to the book, but it didn't quite fit mm-hmm. in about this fight that the Indonesian Minister of Health got in with the WHO and the Global oh. Influenza Surveillance Network because in the 2005 avian flu outbreak, Indonesia is a member state of the Global Influenza Surveillance Network, which has like all kinds of like Bill Gates money and like, but it's also like a tr- like a UN treaty. Um, and the GISN was like, okay, give us the 
wild type bird flu. Like give us the bird flu that your people are getting sick from so we can develop a vaccine. And she was like, no, I have sovereign, that's Indonesia's property. We have sovereign rights over that. That's a natural resource. We grew that bird flu here and it belongs to us. Like, it's so badass. I'm like obsessed with this. That's our flu. You can't have it. Yeah, you can't like make a vaccine out of this flu that we can't then afford. So it's this like really interesting. That is fascinating. Conflict. And then she was, and she was also like, uh, like, um, in a way, like not doing herself any favors in the sort of Western media, she would like veer between like, this is neo-imperialism and like also I'm best friends with Olympic gold medal, medal skier, Peter Bogdanovich. Like there was some like performance, <laughs> like wobbliness that wasn't <laughs> like serving her exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Like the, like Haiti can't win its own independence. Malaria won the independence mm. and and though, like, if there's disease, like, emer- if there are new strains of avian flu emerging from Indonesia, like, that also doesn't even belong to them, right? right. So it's like Haiti can only have one resources, which which is malaria. But if anybody right. tries to say we have a re- like, not military strategy, not like an actual mm-hmm. revolution, but just malaria, and if Indonesia says we have one resource and it's bird flu, they're like, no, that's not yours. Right. right. The they here is a little vague, but I think you take my point. Oh, I know who they are. <laughs> I know who they are. But speaking of they, uh, one of my favorite, uh, you know, the I, I love reading about 1857 India, but the, some of the stuff you found there was, you know, I mean, I guess, it, yeah, it was, it was incredible to me. But like, there was a really interesting uh, person you mentioned that I didn't know about, Ernest Jones. Oh, so, yeah. Ernest Jones is a he's a chartist, which means chartist. he's he's like uh, in favor of democratic reform in uh, Britain, which you know the lots of chart they presented a, a petition with a million signatures or whatever at some point in eighteen thirty or eighteen thirty one or something. But um, he's also in his way uh, pro independence for India, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, tell me about him. Okay, well, I, so he's really not a huge figure in the book. And I would just, I would just say, like, I should probably go back and read more about him. But I'll (laughs) tell you my favorite fact about Ernest Jones, which is that he wrote that poem um, in his own blood in prison. So like, speaking of things that are like hella metal, (laughs) this man was like in prison for sedition or some similar thing. And like in prison wrote this epic poem about like the liberation of like what we would now call the global south or the third world. I think what's fascinating to me about that poem is that, um, so the way I kind of situated in the chapter is that I'm talking about um, like, so this subalternist historian Ranajit Guha has this great observation in his essay, The Prose of Counterinsurgency, where he's like, every time there's a peasant rebellion, it gets naturalized. And it's called an earthquake or a wildfire, a tornado or whatever. And his point is one that I, really try to build on, um, mm-hmm. namely that kind of naturalization just takes away agency from, from the rebels. Yeah. So Ernest Jones is, is cool in a way because he's like a romantic poet and he's taking up those sublime ideas that we, well, I'm remembering that you're not a literary historian, but he's taking up those like sublime ideas of like the romantic lyric subject and the kind of, mm-hmm. and bringing it to, like away from the lyric individual toward this kind of collective. And it's like, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's like really rousing. At the same time, he can't really or doesn't really break free of those 
old figures and old tricks. And Mm -hmm. it's like that poem evinces a speaker that like really wants the um, oppressed peoples of the world to rise, but can't quite imagine what that would look like politically. Like it's just, it's just, it's just revolutionary energy and no, um, no after, no sense that yeah. um, self-determination is something that could be, it's almost like a prediction of the failed state paradigm. Like he right. almost seems to, and, and, and kind of the energy is just like, and then it'll all burn and then that'll be great. So you, you get the sense reading the poem that it's as much about like the empire will fall as it is about the subjects of empire will rise. Yeah, which I, which I, I feel is like a limitation of a lot of, <laughs> Western, you know, anti-imperialists even today, right? It's sort of like um, you might have a critique of you might have a critique of what the imperialists are doing, but you also have to like have an equally strong critique of their people they're targeting, right? So it's like, well, you know, I'm not yeah. with these bad regimes, you know, I'm not with these bad, you know, terrorists, but uh, you know, yeah, no, it's like it's like liberation for all, and then like, oh my god, but not like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. squeamish, and and in fact, um, you know that that is also a big part of what imperialism has always been like. So when when you write about um, the mutiny and you unearth all this literature, like a lot of it is, you know we're we're doing something then there's this contagious epidemic of rebellion we have to try to you know contain it using science you know using these different methods of of uh professional and western methods um but like um it's also when when it finally when they finally do something like when they cross some red line like they kill our women and children or whatever then it's just like incredible revenge, right? Then it's just like revenge beyond anything, you know, because we have to teach them who's boss. We have to teach them who's in charge. And uh, and it's also like doubly enraged because like, how could you do this after everything we've done for you? I'm just going to read like one, if I can find it, I want to read you like one little line because the way that the the way that imperial historians talked about this um i think this is jwk who i write about in the first chapter says of the growing unrest in Awad, um the sooner this epidemic of mutiny is put a stop to the better mild measures won't do it a severe example is wanted I love this. This is like exactly the ticking time, time bomb scenario, like rhetoric of, of 9-11, the next phrase. I'm convinced that timely severity will be leniency in the long run. Yeah. Like, first of all, this is just like punitive language that, we, that you know, like we don't even use for toddlers anymore. No. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's the, the lie is so consistent that one almost gets bored like reading about it or writing yeah. about it. But yeah, it's like, we're coming in to heal you. And like, if you won't be healed, we'll fucking kill you. Yeah. Well, Lord, the, the opium, we're doing the opium war now on, on our show. And it's like, Lord Elgin is one of the, one of the weirdest, weirdest guys. Cause he's just like, the Chinese don't understand that I'm their only friend. Like he says, he says something like, 
and deity. <laughs> I'm their only friend here. And these stupid, you know, just the stuff that he's amazing. He's an amazing. I'm not like a psychoanalytic reader, but I have to say, like, sometimes reading these 19th century colonial officials, you're like, this sad boy had no friends. <laughs> he brings like, it out in you. Know? You, yeah. can't, you can't, I hate psychologizing, uh, and like, I hate analysis that psychologizing, but uh, you can't. You can't not do it with this guy. Like some of these guys, Kipling too, right? Like, oh my God. You have a chapter on Kipling. Um, Kipling. I do. Kipling. You ever been to Kipling station? I keep, um, in Toronto, there's a Kipling subway station. And oh yeah, of course I have. I'm um, pretty sure it's him. I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but. I think it's fair to assume. I mean, there's also like a <laughs> Mountbatten, like a coffee table and like a Queen Margaret, whatever. Like I've, yeah. as a New Yorker coming to Toronto, I was like, shit, I'm back what? in the empire. This is <laughs> wild. Is, I forgot. What is this? Yeah, colonial. You guys are still part of the yeah. mothership. Yeah, no, I lived on a street called Manchester <laughs> before. Um, yeah. yeah. I forgot, even as I'm saying that, I forgot I lived on Queen. I was like, is there an intersection of Queen and Princess? Because I would love to live at <laughs> that intersection. The Queen. Yeah. Um, there's only one. Uh, yeah, so um, what did we get, though? Did we get anything? Did we get any science out of... Because when in 1854, Jon Snow... Uh, you know, he puts that map together. He Finds puts those the well. dots yeah. on the map. He tears the thing off the well. Like that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Is that a is that a thing? yeah? I mean, like, Keanu could that... play him. <laughs> Who that? Who could play him? Keanu could play him. I'm like, if there's like water, he's like in his yeah. wet. Like, yeah. We're just taking it out of the equation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I love it. Uh, uh, but yeah, so like, yeah, yeah, you say this, you say you're not against colonial science. And not then, against science. That's a, that's a tough one. You know, I, I, it's a tough one. It's a tough one that I'm struggling with that right now. Um, I mean, let me say, like, I, I think there were a lot of people um, in that, let's just call it like a machine. Um, mm -hmm. the machine of colonial medicine, who I would say are pretty close to like the nurses and medical techs and, um, and volunteers and like primary care physicians who are working right now in the US and Canada in system, well, less so in Canada, let me actually just stick to the US where I am, who are working in a system that is straight up evil. They know it, they're trying to fight it. They they're doing good work every single day, but the system they work in, and I'll say this as a university professor as well, like the system they work in is exploitative and broken. Um, and so I, it was really helpful to me in approaching that archive to keep that in mind, that there are like labors of empire that don't necessitate a kind of, um, I don't know. I mean, my colleague, actually, Alan Buell, who I didn't know when I was writing this book, he has this, this gorgeous book called Colonialism and um, uh, Romanticism and Colonial Disease, which I learned a lot from. And there are just reminders in that book that really changed things for me about class and the work of empire. Um, a lot of the people who were sent abroad were third sons, had no fortune, had to like ransom their lives to really dangerous situations. That doesn't make them heroes in my mind, but it does change the way that I approach the archive and it, it helped me see things. There were all these guys, you know, on the ground in and around Calcutta who were like, 
every morning at 3 a.m. going out to be like, what's up with the wind? Is the wind going to make people sick today? And like they were wrong in most every way. Um, but but not each one of those people, like they were complicit in the same way that I'm complicit. Um, they weren't driving the the like profits of the East India Company and later the Raj. They were part of it. Um, but I think they were part of it in, in the same way that nurse practitioners are part of for-profit medicine in the U.S. There was this doctor in Canada, uh, Dr. Peter Bryce, um, in the beginning of the 20th century. And he was like a whistleblower of the residential schools. Hmm. Uh, and he tried to, he, he wrote a letter to the Indian Affairs Commissioner saying, you know, the conditions are being deliberately created in our residential schools to spread infectious diseases. And he was uh, fired, whatever. But he he published it as a book. So he was uh, he, he he published his book like being a record of the health conditions of the Indians of Canada from 1904 to 1921. Peter Bryce. Yeah, Peter Bryce. You yeah. know, so he's a good example of you know someone working in the system who's just like oh, no wrong, um, and he sees it and he calls it and he suffers for it. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. Well, first of all, thank you for that reference. Cause I, the parts of the, the parts of the, like in some ways you finish a book and then you're like, okay, what am I, you know, I have like five, I have five other projects, but also like everybody's now researching my book, um, which is cool. Like, or like alongside me, you know, and like teaching me things every day. But the thing that really strikes me is the, is the profundity of the overlap with the U S imperial genocidal projects um, in North America, Canadian and U S um, mm. genocidal projects in the U S and, it's it took me out of my period and out of my imperial kind of um, expertise. But the more I think and the more I read, the more it seems absolutely clear to me that there actually should be like a fourth part of this book, um, mm -hmm. which is about uh, genocide. In, in the, because I'm already writing about the U.S. neo-empire, yeah. kind of in the same geography that like Daniel Immerwar is writing about it in How to Hide an Empire. But there's the internal empire that I haven't really started thinking about as seriously or uh, researching as seriously as, as I should have. So. I don't yeah, know. I mean, I think I'll be teaching classes about this for a while. So even if it's a teaching text and not a coda mm -hmm. or a something. The disease yeah. is so central, right? And it's, it's so, it's, it's, it's like, in some ways, the mirror image of what you're writing about in, in your book. It's really cool. It works. It, yeah. Your book really opens your mind up to like seeing these connections too. Um, let's go back to uh, the WHO. Because you have this quote from a spokeswoman, health interventions are by nature apolitical. <laughs> I love that. We're just talking about health here. It's just health, right? Um, and, the, and the context, uh, dear listeners, is the polio vaccine scandal, right? So it's the idea that um, because they... U.S. counterinsurgent forces sneak around, um, gather intelligence in this vaccination program. So now uh, the Taliban are, you know, killing people who are really doing vaccination programs. Yeah. Um, and so the the uh, NGO workers are like, "Hey, you know, you're screwing up our our thing here." Um, so yeah, what, yeah. Tell me, tell me. <laughs> Talk yeah. About it. So this is this story is wild, and it's the beginning of the yeah. book, and it's like 
it's kind in a way kind of like that um, time period that you mentioned earlier, like, okay, the epidemiological society starts in 1850. And then like the journal, like, whoa, mm -hmm. what a time period. It was kind of the same mind blowing thing when I when I was like, why this figure? Why this figure? And then I was like, oh, the CIA straight up ran a vaccination campaign. Um, so the backstory here is this was reported really by um, uh, Afghanistan-based reporter, Matthew Akins and Mark Mazzetti, who reports for the Times, is that the CIA hired a Pakistani doctor named Shakil Afridi to um, administer hepatitis B vaccinations, which come in like sequences. So you have to actually keep, like, it's not just a, it's, this is important to me actually, because it's not just a, like you hit the, the town once or the neighborhood once, and then it actually gives you cover for ongoing surveillance because the vaccines have to happen at like one month or like time one, and then one month and then six months. So it actually, it gives you a kind of like period of time in which to be infiltrating a community that makes sense according to the vaccine schedule. Um, so the operation was supposed to locate DNA um, from the compound where they thought Bin Laden was hiding based on a match with his sister who had died in Boston the year before. So this doctor and the nurses that worked for him, I mean, nobody, these are all classified documents. So nobody, it's just like putting pieces together, but nobody really knows whether he gathered that data or not, but they were giving kids hepatitis B vaccinations, which are injections, and then collecting samples from the used needles. Um, and when, when they launched Operation Neptune Spear in 2011, they were like, okay, we got our guy. And then they just left. So there were people who were like they only halfway that. through their, they needed their booster. Like, so the, the, like not only was it used as a way of spying, but it was also just like, this is to me like the flagrancy of US empire. It was also just like, not even the fiction could be upheld for like another, you know, $20 worth of hep B vaccine to make sure the kids who were the collateral of this fucked up program were actually going to be healthy. That's um, how little of a shit. That's they how little they, yeah. that's how little of a shit they give. Um, and there were all these twists and turns. The one that I like weirdly have latched onto the most is that this, in a way, like no one has heard of this or like some Pakistanis know about it, but in the US you don't really hear about it very often, but Trump weirdly on the campaign trail in 2016 was like, oh, Dr. Shaquille Afridi, I'll release him from prison in Pakistan in 30 seconds. Like it's, there's obviously this weird Pakistan is like a neo-colony of the of the U.S. kind of like 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 my authority to like yeah. you know invade the sovereign territory of Pakistan is the same as my authority to release somebody from Pakistani prison. Like, did you read that story <laughs> when I read that in your book? Did you read that story about that guy? There was like an American operative who then got imprisoned for a while, and there was like a negotiation, and there's this quote that's so amazing in the new it was like a long read like a new yorker long read or something and the ambassador i think it was hussein Haqqani, and he was like he told the americans he said if you're gonna send a, <laughs> i can't even get through it without laughing he apparently told the americans if you're gonna send a jason bourne character into pakistan he should have the jason bourne skills to get out <laughs> i mean once again, we're back at Keanu. I have a suggestion for the casting agent. Wait, that's oh, New Yorker. Look, I'm getting I such think, a good reading list from this conversation. Yeah, no, that was one of the best. Just search for that quote, I think. If you can't find it, I'll find it for you. It was just, it's like one of the best things that anyone has ever said to anyone. 
I don't know if you remember this part of the book, but like the whole extent to which that operation was just play acted, like the whole, war, yeah. I mean, not even that operation, but the war on terror was just play acting, but like, like fucking George W. Bush and like combat drag standing on the, on the. Well, yeah. And it, it's amazing too. Cause like bin Laden was made into this villain, right? Like he's, he's met, he was a manufactured, uh, you know, I guess you could say he's a figure like he's a manufactured villain right like nobody heard of him on September 10th and then everybody was supposed to just hate him you know existentially on September 12th or whatever it's like we figured out who it is this is the guy like we're starting our thing and and it's like then they do this these DNA tests to find him and kill him like the very person that they had made into this thing and it's like the way they mix like their propaganda with their scientific discourse and their, it kind of reminds me of the war on drugs where there was like yes. a time when they're like, we're going to, we're going to find a biological agent that kills the coca leaf. And it's like, guys, you made the coca leaf into Wait, the thing. Yeah, no, there's, there's people researching that. I don't think they've done it, but they're, you know. No, but they said they were good. They, yeah. yeah, it was like a yeah. mood. Like, I'm sure there was like, you know, $75 million devoted to the biological. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah. No, so I mean, like, you can't science your way out of evil. Like, it's not, yeah, it's, well, like, it strikes me as the same thing as like a, you know, the like, oh, we'll just like throw like um silver dust into the atmosphere and it'll block right. global war. Like, right. okay. But it's, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. It, but it's perfect in the sense that it's like, um, you know, the, the, the imperial system that creates these things. And it's not just like it creates real things like the, the insurgencies are real, right? Like the, the wars are real, but then the villains and the, the way they create like the, like the war on terror, it's like, okay, that's definitely not real. Terror is not a thing you can have a war on. And drugs are not a thing you can have a war on. So this is something else. Now we're talking about something else. We're talking about something, some kind of idea. Um, but it's like um, the relationship between creating these things and then fighting them with weapons, with real weapons. Um, it's it, it, it's and kind selling of like a, other people weapons to also fight them. I mean, I yeah. think yeah. And then, but then it's to me, it's like getting back to like literature and science like reading science this way the way you kind of read it it's like um it's almost like science is a genre too right or you know it is yeah yeah and so um yeah like do you want to because there's this thing where you you uh, there's a quote from Camus I guess uh, literature shows us that which is while science simply records observed events. That's not what I think of science, but, but it's interesting that that's, you know, that's how it's like, yeah. Tell me, tell me what you, what you, what you think of like the relationship, like after this work, after this project, um, how do you think about literature and science and the way these things are constructed and used by imperialism? The like abstract kind of cute answer, I think I would say is that they're they're really more similar than we often allow. And, mm -hmm. and actually like the way that we teach kids and young people um, 
in North America and actually even more in, in Europe, which specializes kids even earlier in terms of like choose a track or like what is going to be your, what is going to be your area? What are you going to go to college for? Like the, it, it creates and maintains artificial non-literacy on whichever side you haven't chosen. And I think one effect of, of kind of quarantining to borrow my own stupid figural vocabulary, but like quarantining one from the other is act is actually on purpose to produce this non-literacy from, from one field to the other. So that, um, so that people aren't as, uh, or be don't believe that they're as capable as they actually are of making their own judgments and reading critically and so forth. Um, so in a way I would say like both literature and, and, and science are like hypothesizing something and exploring mm -hmm. it. Right. I mean, I think the, the funny thing about that Camus quote is that it mostly just sounds like like French nonsense to me. I mean, I am wearing horizontal stripes, but I don't have that much sympathy for like existentialism. Um, and it, yeah, if you read that far in the book, you know that I hate that novel. Um, <laughs> no, I hate I hate Camus like full stop. Like, I can't viciously, yeah. Um, but but you know that's a kind of like cocktail party answer to your question. To be a bit more serious about it, I think I think like. If we if we go ahead and concede that like both are technologies of power, um, then understanding like how those technologies work in pretty specific moments or pretty specific ways around political intensity, we're we're better able to kind of like rewire those technologies and make them work against um, the power that uh, I think often of these like kids who, I mean, going back to your earlier point about like the monsters the US has created, like the instability in Afghanistan and the rise of the Taliban is also a direct result of Cold War policies. And one of the things I actually wish I had it, I mean, if you wanna take a break, I can like run and grab it and show you, but I have, um, there's these gorgeous war rugs that were produced in Afghanistan in the um, in the 80s, and mine it it's like the size of a prayer rug, um, and mine has an American tank, a huge AK-47, and like beautiful like carpet motifs on it, <laughs> and these war rugs like they give us something really crucial, I think, in terms of like the text of post-imperial occupation. And when I think about rewiring the mm -hmm. technology of science or literature, I think about the kids who like hang out in Peshawar and like take a radio and like make it into a car, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a kind of like hands-on pulling apart and putting back together that is, I think, mm -hmm. like the best of both literature and science. Um, a tinkering, yeah. it's, like, it's like advanced tinkering. I don't know. Is yeah. that a satisfying answer to you? What do you no, think about it's totally, science? It's totally culture? satisfying to me because I, yeah, I mean, that's exactly, that. I think of it as a continuum. I do. I think of it as like inquiry, human curiosity, and then, yeah, like what you, what you do with it. But it's, um, you know, I'm like I, the, the, for me, like the most amazing thing about imperialism from the time your your period starts in your book to now is like the ability to co-opt everything so it's like they can they co-opt anti-imperialism now right like it's if you're a re if you're an anti-imperialist yeah. you've got to support our humanitarian imperialism here or there because in libya right? yeah in libya yeah, yeah. libya is yeah. you know I, I never know whether somebody's down so i didn't want to i didn't want to use an example because no, you I might mean, have been our... like no we had to overthrow <laughs> 
No, I mean, I what I, actually, I will say, I don't, I don't actually tr- trust my own judgments yeah. about what should or shouldn't happen. But I definitely right. trust my own judgments about when I see language that is straight up Victorian language coming back in little cute number letter combos like R two P responsibility to protect. Right. I'm like, yeah, no, that's Benjamin Disraeli. Yeah, I remember. Like, that's that, not right. new. <laughs> no, that's great though. But that's exactly why it's so important to study this period, like. Uh, one of the mo- one of the the books that I used, um, uh, you know, not the most reputable uh, scholar, but I really got a lot out of it is this Amaresh Mishra, the the War of Civilizations, eighteen fifty seven, and he his thing at the end, he's like, what Britain did in India in the nineteenth century is an exact analogy for what America is doing in the Middle East now. It's like, you know. If, if the if the British had had their way, India would be broken. Like India would have stayed as a bunch of princely states, right? And they would have mm. each had their relationship to um, to Britain. They would have each been related. Relationship, yeah, yeah right, 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 yeah. Right, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe the Madras presidency would have become a thing and the Bombay presidency would have become another thing. And then each of these Rajas would have, been a like that that's a better imperialist like that better than having to deal with one country like i'm not a fan of what india has become the in recent years or no but like also sidebar partition like they can't deal with one country so they so they like a blueprint this massive uh, basically it's like that bad stepmother in the beginning of Sleeping Beauty, right? They like curse. Yeah. They're like, okay, yeah. bye. We're taking off. We're yeah. going to curse you with this blueprint for a 50-year nuclear yeah. standoff. Yeah. Like we don't even know what nukes are yet, but definitely you guys are going to fight each other with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My, I don't know about you. My my um, people are from what is now India. Like we're Mahajars. Um, so my mother was born in Pakistan, but her parents are both from the other side of the border. Mm. Yeah, no, my, my, my family's from Kerala. So. <laughs> Safely far away from that border. <laughs> oh, yeah. Whenever we go, yeah, like uh, it was there in 2013 and, and we started and I started in Kerala and then I went to Delhi um, and they were like, oh, don't go there. <laughs> this is dangerous up there. <laughs> and oh, I was like, I know. <laughs> I know. I <laughs> know. But yeah, it's, I mean, um, the one last thing, the science of rebellion, this is a phrase that, um, that comes up as well. To talk about the science, let's conclude with the science of rebellion. Let's... So this phrase comes from this weird little pamphlet um, that Kipling wrote, and I can't begin to understand what he, what he meant by it. But I think back to the point of, um, taking and tinkering. I mean, I I think all the time about this line from Césaire's discourse on colonialism where he, he's just like the first person I read who ever said like, there's no efficacy to romanticizing a pre-colonial past. And I'm, I'm, I'm there with that, right? Like we speak English, we have been hegemonically forced into a certain kind of cultural situation, migrations and so forth. So with the science of rebellion, what I basically hear is a, a kind of um, opening. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if imperial disease poetics is going to call any uprising an epidemic, mm-hmm. then like, can we be doctors of our own 
rebellious behavior. I mean, it's also a kind of Foucauldian point. Like one thing that I don't do in this book is um, like I go out out into the periphery to see where the power is. But Foucault's like premise um, in locating like the capillary nodes of power is also to say like, those are where the resistance begins. Mm -hmm. And this, this book is very much about an archive of power. So I'm not uh, in this book at a place where I'm saying like, and then this is what the rebellions look like. But I think Kipling doesn't mean it that way, but I think that phrase is kind of hopeful in the sense that um, it does suggest something like, um, like if we're gonna be like subjected to a medical gaze, if we're going to be like naturalized subjects who act like microbes, like <laughs> let's effing act like microbes, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And like make and you our- you can't have our virus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we are our own. <laughs> well, uh, that's really cool. Uh, there, because when when I think of a science of rebellion, I guess I think of like the way people Marxists call themselves scientists. And I think you did this. Yeah. Did you do this? Did you say like even though Marx said all this like chauvinistic stuff, um, did you did you say? But it's still he you know. But there's still like value. So he also yeah I do say this because he one of the very few Western commentators who actually grants that there might have been yeah. a reason for exactly. the rebellion. And I think, yeah, just to kind of round out that thought and be less cutesy about it, like the science of rebellion also potentially invites us to think about, I mean, I really think about um, Fanon in the clinic in Algeria, like leaving Martinique to join the war, experiencing what European hypocrisy was as a, as a black man fighting for an independent, for a free Europe, going to Algeria, joining the revolution, and then joining the revolution as a psychiatrist and as a doctor. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, you know, if, if, if there's any way, because the other thing that happens around these insurgencies and so forth is that we're never identified as reasoning subjects. And so maybe there's some kind of tactical, I'm not ontological about these things. I don't want us like all to join arms and be like, now we're scientists of rebellion. On the other <laughs> hand, I am interested in like borrowing language kind of strategically where we can and being like, no, this is a kind of program and a plan. And like independence is not some emotional explosion or some fanatical, and it's not because of malaria, it's because yeah. we have a kind of rational yeah. understanding of what, of what our freedom means. How about in a world of Kipling's Be a Fanon? How about that? How about yeah, I like it. Can we do that? T-shirt, T-shirts, <laughs> <laughs> mugs. <Okay. laughs> All right. All right, let's stop. Let's stop. Let's quit while we're ahead. 